I have a last thank you. It is to my mother, Celia Amster Bader, the bravest and strongest person I have known, who was taken from me much too soon. I pray that I may be all that she would have been had she lived in an age when women could aspire and achieve and daughters are cherished as much as sons. Hello and welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves. I'm Katie Hafner and I'm your host. Our collective heart broke last Friday with news of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. She didn't just spend decades fighting for women's equality, but she believed deeply in the transformational power of the law. She believed in giving back to society even when you don't have much. And she believed in what one person, a woman, in the 1950s could do. And throughout her life, she was completely and unapologetically herself. It makes you wonder, where did all that come from? Much of the answer lies in these words, Celia Amster Bader, RBG's mother. She was brilliant. She was strict. She advised her daughter to be a lady, to have a career, the key to independence, and that daughter adored her. To help shed some light on what made Celia who she was, I'm talking today to Jane Sharon DeHart. She's a professor emerita at UC Santa Barbara who spent 15 years working on her Ginsburg biography. In 2008, her house burned down in a wildfire and her manuscript was destroyed. Luckily, Justice Ginsburg had a copy that she had been marking up and the book was published in 2018. The title is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Life. Jane Sharon DeHart, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about Celia Amster Bader. I'm delighted to do it. I thought that we would get a little bit of help in piecing together Celia's life from Justice Ginsburg herself, from the very beginning of her confirmation hearing in 1993. <laughs> I am, as you know from my responses to your questionnaire, a Brooklynite, born and bred, a first-generation American on my father's side, barely second-generation on my mother's. When she said barely second-generation on my mother's, uh, she's talking about Celia's... Celia was conceived in Europe and born in the United States. There's a photograph of Celia's tombstone. The tombstone says she was born in May of 1902, but then the document next to it says she was born on the 4th of July of 1902. Uh, Do you know which one is correct? No, I don't. I wasn't even aware of the discrepancy. Can you imagine if she really was born? That's just, just for fun. Let's assume she was born. Imagine she was born on the 4th of July. Why not? I think what I might do is post the photograph that shows the discrepancy and see if someone wants to pipe up and say, no, no, it was this date. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about Celia's parents and where they were from. They were from a little village uh, near what is now Krakow, Poland. They moved to New York and they lived on the Lower East Side and her Father, I think, was a cabinet 
maker. And Celia was the smartest. He had a son and three daughters. I'm going to interrupt you for one second to talk about the reason um, the Jews from Eastern Europe were coming in the first place. And here's our second little uh, assist from um, RBG. Their parents had the foresight to leave the old country when Jewish ancestry and faith meant exposure to pogroms and denigration of one's human worth. So they were um, fleeing the pogroms of East that were... Yes. Um, so they came across, I'm assuming they didn't travel first class on anything. Uh, no, I'm sure no. they did not. Sadie was the oldest, Celia mm-hmm. was next, and mm-hmm. Bernice was the youngest. But Celia was the smartest. So there she was. She was the smartest in the family. She had a brother named Saul who was older than her or younger. Yes, Saul was older. So since she was the smartest, her dad had her do all the bookkeeping for the business. Is that right? Yes. And so she would mix, I love this, she would mix Yiddish and English in the books when she was uh, notating. She would say something like one cabinet, gefixed. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, the tragedy of Celia is that although she was the smartest, she did not get the formal education. Well, in Jewish families, it was traditional immigrant families. You choose the eldest son, and the whole family invest in his education. The assumption was that if you could educate the son, then he could sort of pull up the rest of the family economically. And so with Celia not getting the education that she probably wanted and Saul going off to Cornell, which will play into the story later, Celia, she was a bookworm. She had her nose buried in books so often that she'd be walking down the street with a book, her nose buried in a book, and once she tripped and broke her nose. Yes. (laughs) That's just a wonderful story. And then so in the, some t- at some point in the 1920s, so let's see, if she was born in 1902, so around in her early 20s, she married a man named Nathan Bader. What you said in the book is that he really was drawn to her because she was attractive, yes, but also very smart, which gets echoed later when, when Ruth met her husband, right? Yes, because uh, Marty was the only person she ever dated, she said, who cared whether I had a brain. Right. So there's her mother, Celia. Ruth's mother, Celia, marries Nathan. And then they had a daughter in 1927 named Marilyn. And then the Depression came, and they had to put off having children, but finally had Ruth. Ruth said that she thinks she was an accident. Oh, interesting. I Uh, did not put that in the book. Well, did she elaborate? No, she didn't. Uh, Did she say it with a smile? (laughs) (laughs) I don't recall. Or that glitch. She she was pretty serious. She's pretty serious. Uh, But she says she's pretty sure it was an accident that they really couldn't have afforded to have another child. Thank goodness they did, right? Thank goodness they did. So they have this perhaps accidental baby and name her Joan Ruth, but then drop Joan 
because so many other babies were being named Joan at the time. Yes, yes. And first grade, I think in first grade, they dropped it because there were so many other Joan Moose. But then there's a tragedy. When Marilyn was how old? Marilyn was six and Ruth was two. Marilyn developed spinal meningitis and dies. And the family is absolutely devastated. I think her father had a penchant for depression anyway. Ruth could recall so many times her mother would say, sit in your dad's lap and see if you can cheer him up. Ruth, she used the phrase, the smell of death. She said, I grew up with the smell of death. Now, it can't be the smell literally, but she was extremely conscious of Marilyn's death. And in fact, a large picture of Marilyn hung over her parents' uh, bed. And in some ways, I think Ruth benefited because Sia was absolutely determined that she was going to keep this little girl alive and that she was going to devote all this energy uh, to bringing her up and helping to, you know, shape the character and personality of Ruth. Which she did in many ways. And so let's bear in mind this, what I call the education thread, where women of a certain generation, when they're talking about their mothers or their mother's mothers, who just didn't get a formal education and therefore really were determined to give their daughter what they didn't get. Absolutely. So we have Celia determined to have her now only surviving child, not just her daughter, but her only surviving child, to give her the education she didn't get. And they have these, um, what you describe as their Friday afternoon adventures. Oh, yes. Well, see, you would, um, every Friday, see, you would go to a little beauty shop to have her hair done. And um, they would also go to the library. And when Ruth got old enough for Celia to leave her at the library while she was having her hair done, then Ruth would pour over the books she wanted to check out. And Ruth's fondest memories are of sitting in her mother's lap with Celia reading to her. Ruth apparently learned to read before she was actually in the first grade. That's my assumption, given what she began reading right away. So there she was, a very um, precocious reader. She and her mom would go to the beauty salon and also to the library. And Celia also really wanted her daughter to have music in her life. And so she she had, um, she had insisted on three hours of practice of, at the piano. Uh, Celia was... Um, Ruth has often used the word demanding. Celia was a very, she says, loving but strict mother. And uh, Celia went to every effort to expose her daughter to the arts and to music. At one grade, Ruth skipped because she was so bright. 
and she had not learned how to do long, I believe it was long division. And so she got, when she skipped a grade, she got a B on math. And Celia had no sympathy for that. And Ruth vowed that she would never get a B again. You said the entire family went into mourning yes. <laughs> when the B, when the B or- arrived on the report card. Celia and Nathan raising their child in, in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And Celia and her sister Bernice, for Ruth's birthday, Ruth didn't get to celebrate a normal birthday. But they, no, th- they would go off to the, the Pride of Judea orphanage. <laughs> well, uh, Bernice and Celia would buy these blocks of ice cream and take them to the orphanage And it was Celia's way of teaching Ruth both about sadaka, about charity, and empathy. Because Ruth, I remember Ruth saying very distinctly, she wanted to have a birthday party like other children did. But she could see uh, how happy the children at the orphanage were and convinced her that that was the right thing to do. This Jewish notion of tikkun olam, of repairing the world. In the world. I think that was instilled in her when she was quite young, and this these trips to the orphanage were all part of that. Part of that, mm-hmm. along with the stories that our mother kept telling her about Jewish women of valor and emphasizing of people like Lillian Wall, you know, did the Henry... Street settlement and the Lower East Side, and and Celia's would tell Ruth these stories about women like Wall as as an example of Jewish women who were adhering to that injunction to repair the world and the actions which they were engaging in to do it, and there was always the emphasis on. Not just the injunction, but the action. And uh, she was a big admirer of Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, yes. She read Eleanor Roosevelt's column in the Brooklyn Eagle every day. She emphasized how important it was for a woman of Eleanor Roosevelt's prominence and position to use her voice on behalf of people who did not have a voice, and to speak for the disadvantaged. Ruth used her notoriety as the notorious RBG. And a perfect example of that, in which she sort of a foil, deliberate foil to Trump, was she requested as sitting member of the Supreme Court to administer the naturalization oath to a group of new immigrants in New York. And she came arrayed in her full robe and in a collar. It was a ceramic collar that was notable for all its bright, different colors, its diversity. She began with a personal note about her her father uh, had arrived in the United States at 13 years old from Odessa uh, with no ability to speak English and no money. And she talked about the importance of immigrants 
and then proceeded to the development of the country. And then she talked about, and this was a deliberate foil to Trump's, uh, you know, make America great again. Then she gave them a little civics lesson, a little history lesson about all the problems that beset the 13 colonies when they became a new nation and all the obstacles against their success, Uh, the problems even in the Constitution in terms of women and blacks. Uh, The United States was exceptional, but only in its emphasis on improvement. She talked about the fact that the United States was still a very imperfect country. I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to play for you the next clip of her confirmation hearing in 1993. What has become of me could happen only in America. Like so many others, I owe so much to the entry this nation afforded to people yearning to breathe free. Emma Lazarus was also one of her mother's women of valor. She's quoting in part from Emma Lazarus' inscription at the Statue of Liberty. Let's fast forward a little bit to when Celia has uh, is watching Ruth go through school very happily, uh, with the exception of that bee, and then something really tragic happens when Celia gets sick. Right. She's diagnosed with cervical cancer, uh, Ruth's freshman year in high school. Oh, gosh. And so Ruth went through high school with her mother being very sick. And in those days, so we're talking about the 1940s, the late 40s, I think radiation was, at the time, kind of standard of care, right? I think she had some surgery, too. Mm-hmm. And then Celia spoke very openly with her daughter about her illness. And when she was dying, she spoke openly about that fact as well. Is that true? Yes, that is absolutely true. And this is unusual because cancer was, at that period, people didn't want to admit to having cancer. Uh, it was sort of a source of shame People didn't speak openly about it. And Celia never, ever told any of her high school friends. Oh, you mean Ruth never told her high school friends? Yes. So Ruth carried this burden internally. And then when she was home with her mother, there was her mother very ill. And she even missed, Ruth missed her high school graduation because her mother died The day of the graduation? I think the night before. But Celia did live to see Ruth get accepted to college. Tell me about that. She did. The family, Bernice and uh, the rest of the family, wanted Ruth to go to Barnard because they were all worried about Nathan, uh, her father, uh, who, as I said, 
my take on all of this was that Sia was sort of the glue that held the family and his business together. And the business was having a hard time after World War II because department stores were, you know, were becoming much more popular, much much more ubiquitous. He was in the um, the retail business? A, a small, inexpensive fur retail business. Mm-hmm. Which his father had had. Which his father had had. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, when Sia died, Nathan declared bankruptcy. And um, this was when Ruth, at that point, um, was the summer before she entered Cornell. She didn't go to Barnard. She No, so- the family wanted her to go to Barnard. But Nathan's, the grief over Celia's death and Nathan's depression was so sort of overwhelming that she felt she had to get away. However, she felt very guilty about it. And that's where the story of Celia's college savings come in. So Celia had saved, what was it, $8,000? $8,000, which was a lot at that time. For college? Because she knew that Nathan could never afford, really, to send Ruth to college. And she was determined that her daughter would not go to a subway school. She was going off to a real, quote, real college. So she scrupulous. She had these savings in uh, because bank, so many banks had failed during the Depression. She had these savings in various banks, but they amounted to $8,000. And they were meant for Ruth's college education. And when Ruth Ruth accepted the Cornell at Cornell, but she was so worried about her father and felt such incredible guilt about leaving him. So Ruth said she had a fellowship and she took a small amount of the $8,000 out that she would need to bridge her fellowship earnings and she would also plan to get jobs at Cornell, which she did the entire time she was there. Uh, and she gave the rest of the money to her father. It is fascinating because you've got Celia. I mean, who knows what Celia's mother was like in terms of Celia, but my guess is that she was just went along with the men who said no education for you because Saul's getting the education. And then Celia did not want to repeat that with Ruth. She made sure Ruth got an education. I wanted to play one thing for you, which I find so uh, amazing. You've talked quite a bit about um, about the fact that Celia wanted, uh, said two things to Ruth. And let, let me just play this for you. She had two lessons that she repeated over and over. Be a lady and be independent. Be a lady meant don't allow yourself to be overcome by useless emotions like anger. And by independent, she meant 
it would be fine if you met Prince Charming and lived happily ever after. But be able to fend for yourself. So this idea of fending for yourself? Well, it's a reflection of Nathan's inability to really earn a secure, adequate uh, living. Mm-hmm. And she uh, also liked working. That's the bottom line. Remind me what she did, what her work was. She was an accountant. She was an accountant for a furrier in the garment district. She did that for years until... Until she married. And then it was a mark of uh, respectability if you did not have a working wife. Exactly. Did he remarry after Celia died? Oh, no. Mm. So he, she was the love of his life. Yes. And the real, the dynamic force in the family, that was very clear. How many times did you interview Ruth? Oh, I guess altogether, I think nine times. And the initial interviews were very long because she would invite me to come to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court on the Friday afternoon of Labor Day weekend at four o'clock. And sometimes we would finish at seven or even eight. So these were quite long interviews. And they weren't easy interviews because in the beginning, uh, she was, we started off actually not talking about her background at all. Uh, and I wasn't primarily interested in that. I was interested in her litigation for the ACLU. And she was happy to talk about the cases. But then one year when I called up to make an appointment, I said, let's talk about, I'd like to talk about Flatbush. And she bristled. She said, we don't need to talk about Flatbush. Meaning, when you said Flatbush, your upbringing, your childhood. Yes. Yes. I said, we need to talk about the Flatbush years. And she really bristled. And she said, no, we don't. They aren't relevant. And I said, well, Ruth, I think it's very important uh, to have accurate facts And I said, I've read articles in which mother died of breast cancer as opposed to cervical cancer. And I gave her several examples of kinds of discrepancies. And I said, I really think it's important uh, to have the record straight. And uh, she said, I'll give you half an hour. And I thought to myself, yes, I'm paying out of pocket a ticket from California to Washington for half an hour. But I said, I certainly didn't say that out loud. I said, that's fine. And when we finished, I said, Ruth, why don't I write up this interview and send it to you and you can make any corrections I cannot tell you how many years of annual visits it took me 
to get the information for that first chapter. Well, she was willing to talk about Celia, but she did not want to talk about her father because she just would not talk about her father except to say he was a quiet, gentle man about whom she felt clearly felt protective. And so I um, asked about Marty's father. Oh, and she opened up and she talked about how much she adored Marty's father, talked about how when they lived on the edge of a country club that they couldn't belong and how he had been involved in establishing the first Jewish country club, how he had worked his way up from stock boy to head of the uh, company he was in. And it became very clear to me in talking about Marty's father. And, you know, I could see the the contrast. And um, so I pointed out in the ways in which Marty's family um, really filled in and became her family. And let's talk about the place of women in the Jewish tradition. Cecilia was not sent to college, not only because the money wasn't there, but because of the, the place of women in Judaism. And one of the things that's so poignant in the book is when you describe the Kaddish and when they were sitting Shiva. Oh, yes. For uh, t- Tell me about that whole thing and how that really turned Ruth around. Let me start with Sia's funeral. Sia, as I had mentioned, had always talked about women of accomplishment and their actions which, repaired, uh, which would repair the world. And... Um, when she died, of course, Sadie, who was extreme, the oldest sister, see his oldest sister who had been born in Europe, was an extremely observant Orthodox Jew. Uh, Sia and Nathan, less so. But I remember Ruth and I had a long discussion as to uh, exactly how, how to describe them because they weren't uh, rigidly orthodox um, but they weren't secular and so I simply described what Jewish observances they kept rituals and all that they kept intact uh, and wound up doing it that way but it was very clear when Sia died that Sadie was you know, it was going to be an Orthodox funeral. And uh, as Ruth said, of course, when uh, they said Shiva, the minion had to be composed of entirely men. And by minion, just for listeners who don't know, aren't familiar with the concept. The group who leads the prayers. Mm-hmm. The the the. the the prayers that are appropriate to say upon the death of an mm. individual. Mm-hmm. The saying of Kaddish. The saying of Kaddish, yes. And uh, the you had to have a, a minion of composed of men 
in the Orthodox tradition to say the Kaddish. And the sitting Shiva can have a very healing element because it also involves talking about every night about the person who has died. It can ease some of the pain. But for Ruth, it was quite the opposite because she felt it was a front to see his memory, to have only men saying the Kaddish. And she was absolutely powerless to do anything about it. So there was no recourse but to go ahead with it. And that was followed, obviously, by um, Ruth Asiya's death, by Nathan's business collapse. And at the synagogue to which the, the Baders belonged, Nathan was unable to pay his dues, so he lost his seat. And Ruth felt that was a further affront to her father's pride. Unbelievable. And she felt that, that this was not what Judaism was supposed to be. That was really the end of it for her. In fact, she never observed Yom Kippur until she was appointed to the Supreme Court. And she felt she had to sort of set an example. But there's a nice ending to this story. And that is um, Ruth's daughter Jane married a Catholic. And Ruth and Marty were fine with it. They liked the young man very much, liked him much better than some of the Jewish boys that Jane had dated over the years. Jane's daughter, Clara Spera, uh, and both children were exposed to both faiths. And Ruth was very proud of that. The daughter, Clara, decided that she was going to be Jewish and that she was going to be an observant Jew. And so Ruth was telling this story about I was interviewing her this time at her apartment. Uh, um, this was after Marty had died. And she was staying, that Clara was staying with Ruth. And um, it was time for Rosh Hashanah. And uh, Clara said, Booby, we have to go to the synagogue. And Ruth said, I inquired among my neighbors in the world at the Watergate as to where we might go because I had no idea. And she said they recommended um, a synagogue in which the rabbi was female, the cantor was female. Ruth describes this, and she said, I couldn't believe it. She said women were going up to the bima. There was a woman rabbi. There was a woman cantor, etc. And she finished talking about this experience and her voice sort of faded. And and she said, um, she was talking about how impressed she was. I felt she was thinking, if I had had access to this, things would have turned out differently for me. Um, but I felt that, that Clara Sparrow was bringing it full circle. Amazing. What a story. Speaking of circles, uh, what a wonderful segue to my last question, which is, you uh, mentioned in passing that Ruth always wore her mother's circle pin. What is that? Oh, 
it's a piece of jewelry. It's a circle pin. They, they, they used to be far more ubiquitous than they are now. And they could be gold with pearls around them or other jewels. And she had inherited one from her mother. And so every time there was an occasion in which she felt that Celia would have been particularly proud of her, she wore the pen. And she wore it when she made her first argument uh, before the Supreme Court and on other occasions of that sort. When you talked to her and she would talk about Celia, did her face light up? Oh, yes. And there's a wonderful... She has Celia's picture on her desk, her old office at the court. And every day when she would leave, get ready to leave her office, she would turn to the photo and say to herself, I hope I've done something today you would be proud of. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking to me about Celia Amster Bader, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's amazing mother. And uh, I want to thank you for uh, for persevering, uh, getting Ruth to talk about her, her childhood and her, and her mother, because now we have that legacy that we can hold on to as we remember Justice Ginsburg. Well, thank you for having me, Katie. I, I really enjoyed it. I'd like to end this week's episode with the clip I started with. It's from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's speech in the Rose Garden in 1993 when President Bill Clinton nominated her for the Supreme Court. This was the last thing she said. I have a last thank you. It is to my mother, Celia Amster Bader, the bravest and strongest person I have known, who was taken from me much too soon. I pray that I may be all that she would have been had she lived in an age when women could aspire and achieve and daughters are cherished as much as sons. And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Andrea Perry composed and performed our theme song. Paula Manchin is our artist-in-residence. And Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredeck Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening, and have the best week you can.